Hi, I'm Nick Saviano, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 46 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. First of all, I want to say big thanks to all those who left us a nice review on iTunes. If you happen to be free, please open up your iTunes podcast and leave us a nice review. It means a lot to us. Secondly, I'd like to say we have a new Instagram account specifically for this podcast. It's something I should have done a long time ago, but we eventually got it set up. It's called Functional Tennis Podcast. So if you search for us on Instagram, you'll find it and it will just have content related directly to the podcast. So we'll be sharing future guests. We'll be sharing some excerpts from all the podcasts, some good stories. We're also going to have a new section on the podcast, which we did our first one in this show is where we ask guests for questions. That's something we've done before, but then the guest sent us in a voice memo and we put your question directly and we ask. This week we had Christian Gallen from Love Tennis UK who asked Nick a question. So really fun, hoping this section can take off in the future. This week we have a world-renowned coach, Nick Saviano, on the show. Nick was a former top 50 player back in the day, but he's better known for working with some great players who've won slams. And he tells us all about it. He's worked with Jeannie Bouchard, Sloane Stephens, Amanda Anamosa, and a load more players. He tells us all about them. He tells us all about some of them in the younger days. He tells us all about his academy, his philosophy, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy the show. Let's get chatting with Nick. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Pleasure to be here. I've been meaning to get you on the show a while. We have you up on our top academies around the world page, which is probably one of our most viewed pages on the website. So it's great to, obviously, we've the blurb about the academy and all the details, but it's great to speak to the main man as well. So delighted to chat with you. Tell me, how is life at the moment with all this COVID situation? How's the academy going? Well, unfortunately, we have had to shut the academy down, at least temporarily, as all the academies in Florida have done, and I guess around the world. But, you know, we've been able to stay in touch with our players and we are poised and ready to go as soon as they open things up. I think that's coming in the next week or two. So we're pretty excited to get back out on the courts and fully functioning. Well, that's great news. You haven't locked all your players in like Rafa did. No, I didn't know he locked them all in, but no, we have not done that. And a lot of our players actually are here with family members or they're at private housing. So we're good to go. Yeah, we did an Instagram live with, I think it was Andy Murray, and he was saying whenever they got closed down, whoever was stuck there had to stay there. Nobody was let in or out. So he's running a tight ship over there. Well, you have to, whenever you're dealing with young people, it's enormous responsibility. So you always have to err on the side of caution. Yes, no, true. It's different when you're entrusted by parents to do the best for the kids. So I think you're right. It's really important. So tell me a bit about the Academy. How long has the Academy been in operation? Well, I started the Academy shortly after leaving the USTA. You know, at the USTA, I was a national coach for boys tennis. I was eventually director of coaching for men's tennis for the United States. I played on the tour for nine years. And then I was also the head of high performance coaching education, which was really actually exciting. And then after that, when I left, I opened the Academy in 2003. You know, I started working with a few players. I decided I really wanted to go out on my own and establish my own methodology and a philosophy for coaching and working with young people. So way back then, 2003, that's when we started and it went extremely well. And some of the, believe it or not, some of the first people I was working with were Jan Michael Gamble and also Vince Spadia and also a very young, a 11-year-old Sloan Stevens came a few years later and Jeannie Bouchard and Monica Puig and a lot of other really good players started evolving or coming in. And so it's been really exciting. It's been an amazing experience, actually, over the years. I've really, really enjoyed it. Let's just cut back a bit before the Academy and before USDA Tour Life. You were a top 50 player. What was it like in, was it the late 70s, being a 
top 50 player? It was an amazing experience. I was one of the top juniors in the United States. At the end of the year, I was ranked three in the country. Then I was the top recruit going into college. So I wound up going to Stanford University. I was an All-American there my freshman and sophomore year. Then I turned pro. But back then, I was 132 in the world when I turned pro. It took me only four months and I was in the top 100. So the depth in the game wasn't quite the same as it is now. So in one respect, it was, let's just say, less of a long grind to get into the top 100. But on the other hand, the rewards weren't as great. Nowadays, the players go to phenomenal hotels. They get paid in qualifyings. The money is great. I remember I got to the round of 16 at Wimbledon twice, and the specific number I remember was 4,000 pounds. Now, 4,000 pounds, that probably was about seven or $8,000, not even that much. And today, I'm not sure what the guys and the gals get paid for a fourth round at, let's say, Wimbledon, but I would suspect it's probably in the 200,000 range. So the money has changed a lot, but it's more than just the money, the quality of the way everything runs on the tour, the ability to communicate with people. You know, you have the phones, you have computers. When I was playing, we didn't have cell phones, believe it or not. So it was a completely different world. When you went away for six weeks, you really were far away. It was tough to get phone calls back with your families. And so it was a different way of life back then than it is now. And I enjoyed it. I loved playing the Grand Slams. But I retired at 28 years old. I spent about eight and a half years on the tour. And when I retired, I was still in the top 100 for singles and doubles. I was recently married and we had our first child. And when my first child was born, Nicole, our daughter, that was it. I said, I'm done and I'm going to get a head start on the rest of my career, which turned out to be coaching. That was a good decision. And Tell me, what was your most memorable match? Great question. One of the most memorable matches I ever had was in England at Wimbledon. I was playing a match against Pat Dupre, who was a semifinalist the year before. And I believe at the time was ranked around 12 in the world. And the day before, I had played Buster Mottram from England. And he was the number one British player. And I remember having to serve to save the match five or six times. So I won nine, seven in the fifth set. And so I had to come out the next day and play again against Pat Dupre. And this match was in the cold fog, long match. And I remember my body aching and I wound up winning that one 12-10 in the fifth set. And I remember just kind of overcoming the exhaustion. And at 10 all or 11-10, I was ahead. And I finally got a break point. And I remember to this day thinking, okay, should I go for this and rip the return? Because, you know, I just can't seem to break. And this is the one opportunity. So I cheated thinking he was going to hit to my backhand. He did. And I happened to hit it just right. And boom, it was a winner. And I said, thank goodness that's <laughs> over. I had a couple long matches in Wimbledon. And I had one with Brian Godfrey, who was four in the world. And that took either three or four days to complete, believe it or not. And I was down two sets to love and 5-2. And it was almost nine o'clock at night. And the groundskeepers were all there waiting to put the tarts over the court. So they were waiting for me to lose. So I was down double match point quickly, wound up holding serve for 5-3. And then I played one of the best games of my life, 5-4. I break serve, I hold serve, I break him, and I win the set. Then, because we were there late, um, they didn't put me on first the next day. And so they had a women's match on. It rained a lot that day. So that was a Friday. We only got like five games in. So then it pushed us over till Saturday. But of course, we were out at the courts till very late again. And so they didn't put us on right again. So we wound up playing one set and then it got dark again. And then, of course, Sunday they don't play. So then we had to wait. And then on Monday morning, we played, we finished the match and it had a happy ending for me. I won 6-1 in the fifths. So those were my two good memories of Wimbledon long matches that stood out. You definitely love the five-setter. You must have been a fit player. 
I was, but that was a lifetime ago. I'm sure you still caused the juniors a bit of hassle on the court over there. Yeah. <laughs> so you decided the family got up and going and you said, okay, I better start my real career and start trying to make some real money here. And you did work for the USTA and then obviously evolved into your academy. And where about exactly in Florida is the academy? We're moving right now to a town called Davie, Florida, which is really a suburb of Fort Lauderdale. And uh, we're very excited. We've been in this area for 18 years. So we're excited to get back going out on the courts. And it's a great location. It's about 15 minutes from the Fort Lauderdale Airport, International Airport. And it's about 25 minutes from Miami and about 45 minutes from West Palm. So from our perspective, it's the best location in the world. Easy to get in and out. It's an unbelievable capital of the world in terms of competitive tournaments. So it's as good a place in the world to have an academy. It is amazing. Most of our online orders go to the States and most of them go to Florida. It's just tennis crazy. I'm from Ireland and I know some people here who have homes over there and they go over in our winter. So they're over there now. They're probably not playing any tennis now, but they go over there for the tennis and they absolutely love it. So I know it's a great spot, be it recreationally and at the pro level. So what sort of setup do you have? We're just moving within the next couple weeks to a beautiful facility. It has um, nine beautiful courts. We have clay, we have hard court. There's two gyms there. We have a beautiful turf to work out of. There's security all around a, a great facility for what we do. We are about having a very high quality, highly personalized training program, which combines the benefits of a larger academy where you have benefits of, you know, a good staff and you have, you know, players to play and all of the benefits that you take into consideration about a larger academy, but we're in a size that keeps it highly personalized. I'm out on the courts morning till night. It's not where I put my name on it, but what we do is we personalize it. We make sure each player has a developmental plan, which is tailored specifically to them. And then we are very serious about helping players achieve their goals and objectives. Because as you well know, each player is uniquely different. Each family has different dreams and hopes for their child. And we look at that as every single individual there is important. And so we do a blend of academy and individual training, which, you know, has really worked well for in a small academy. We've had multiple people that have gone on to be world-class players and high world-class players, men and women. But more importantly, or just as importantly, as I should say, is that we are proud of the fact that our kids that are aspiring to go to a great school wind up doing that. We've had virtually 100% of our players that are aspiring to go to college and play in college have achieved that goal, something we're extremely proud of. In addition to the obvious um, pride that we take in some of the great players that have come through the Saviano Method and our academy. And tell me, what percentage of your players either go college versus the pro route? Well, I would say easily 90%. Now, there are a lot of players that have a dual uh, goal of going to college and then transitioning into the pros afterwards. And so if you include players like that, that aspire and then get out there on the tour and give that a try, probably a little bit more than 90%. But I would say 90, 95% will go to college, 5% to 10% will actually make it out on the tour. But believe it or not, most of the players, when they hit 15, 16, the reality of their current level they may be outstanding, but as you well know, making it out on the men's tour is extraordinarily difficult. And bypassing college for a male or a female 
really is something that has to be taken seriously. And one would want and hope for very exceptional performance and results to justify the going out on the tour. In addition to that, which is often not discussed, it's not about always um, a player being committed to do that. A lot of times they are, but it is something when you're going to go out on the tour, you have to do it right to be successful. And in order to do it right, it requires a significant amount of financial support. And not everyone has that. So the ability to go and transition into a great university and go from there onto the tour is a, a wonderful option that um, many of our players have actually done and been successful at. I completely agree with you. But just a question, can you see a player when they're 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, this guy or girl, yes, they're going to be able to go pro. Is it visibly clear to you or do you get surprises sometimes? Well, I'd love to say that I never get surprised, but that wouldn't be true. I will tell you, I don't get surprised very often, but that's usually when you're evaluating younger players. Quite frankly, at 14, 15, 16, it's pretty clear when somebody has the ability to become a world-class player. So I think on the women, for sure, you have a clear idea at 14, 15, whether somebody realistically has a shot at it. Now, that's not saying that they're a guarantee. No one's a guarantee um, until they've actually accomplished it. But it does mean that they have a realistic opportunity to achieve this goal. On the men's side is a much longer, slower process, especially now. And one of the reasons why you find it more challenging to get the men through to break through and play world-class tennis has as much to do with the cost involved going forward as it does the training. And that's why college becomes a really good option for them to develop their skills. Because even when you talk about the elite best juniors in the world on the men's side, not many of them can break through on the tour without minimum three years of working at it. And there's only a handful of players, when I say handful, less than a handful of players on the men's tour under the age of, say, 20 that are actually making it. So Conversely, on the women's tour, there are quite a few. And, you know, like even one of the gals that I work with, you know, have over the years, um, like Amanda Anismova, she's, she's 18. Now, her dad was her primary coach. He would bring her out, you know, along with the mother, Olga, and she'd come out once a week here, sometimes twice a week, whatever, since she was 11 years old. But the point is, I could tell with her that she was going to be a world-class player clearly by 14. But she, at 14, was already got to the finals of the French juniors. You know, at 15, I told the parents, look, she's going to be winning 50,000s and $75,000 tournaments, you know, as soon as she starts playing them. And basically, that's what transpired. With somebody like, who's a mega talent, like a Sloan Stevens, when I first saw her, she came to our academy at 11 years old. It was obvious she was a phenomenal athlete, not a great tennis player at that point. But there, after a year or two seeing the genetics that, you know, her dad was a world-class football player and uh, the mom was a world-class swimmer and her commitment level, I knew right then and there that if she kept with it, she would become world-class. With the guys, I would tend to know more at the 15, 16-year-old age where you really say, okay, this kid has got something really special. Okay, so somebody like Sloan, who you had from an early age, you knew straight away, if we can teach her the right things here, she has this natural physical talent, she can go places. Was it just a matter of her working hard, following your instruction for those years? It's about a lot of things, about a commitment, about having a joy and passion for the game, but her athleticism, her strength, her speed, her explosiveness, her rhythm, timing, 
was extraordinary. And it's just a a pleasure to have her on the court. It's amazing what she can do just physically and the rhythm, her ability to produce shots, the racket head speed is really quite extraordinary. So not only with Sloan, you you really feel blessed when you have the opportunity to work with, you know, whether it be a world-class male or a world-class female or somebody that in the future, you know, is going to be special. I, I'll just uh, make one comment. You know, when I came off the tour, I didn't go straight with the USTA. I did some work with the USTA. I had four years coaching individually by myself, and that went really well. But quite candidly, my first training camp that I did, the USTA invited me, was 1984, and I had just come off the tour. And this is a true story. I go out on the court, and I'm still ranked in the top 100. And I'm playing this little guy, and he's 14 years old, Chinese descent. And so I think with this kid, I'm saying, wow, this kid is really good. And I'm going along and saying, I'm retired. The guy's 14, and I'm struggling a little bit. So anyway, that little guy was Michael Chang. So then, you know, I'm a little bit tired, you know, because of working hard. And so the next little guy comes out. He's just turned about to turn 15. And he's a little overweight. He's not being but. He's ripping the forehand, running me around, strong as heck. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, it's a good thing I retired. And that was Jim Curry. So then I go and about to hit with another one. And this guy was another guy. And this was David Wheaton, who had gotten to 12 in the world. So I sit down. I'm thoroughly exhausted. True story. So the kids are standing around me. I think Pete Sampras was there as well. And I'm really tired. And they said, uh, have you hit with Andre yet? <laughs> it's a true story. And so uh, in the afternoon, I wind up on a serve court with Andre and another young man. And that was the first time I met Andre Agassi. He was 15 as well. So that was quite a baptism, so to speak, into uh, coaching. And when I ran into those guys, I said, you know what? It's good I retired. Yeah, I'd say it must have been impressive. They're such a good group of lads back then. Nick Boliteri did a great job. Nick created an amazing environment. And with those guys, I was fortunate to spend uh, quite a bit of time. Well, Michael Chang wasn't at Nick's, but, you know, the other guys were. And I was really fortunate later on to travel quite a bit with Jim, you know, in my position with the USTA. But I'll tell you, Nick Boliteri is a good friend of mine, and he was somebody I was always pushing for to be in the Hall of Fame because what he's accomplished in his lifetime in contributing to tennis goes way beyond just developing players. So I always tip my hat to Nick. He's a close friend, and uh, uh, it's been a pleasure to have a friendship with him over the years. He definitely has done a great job. And tell me, was Jim Courier's backhand the exact same back then? It was a little funky back then. I remember thinking, gosh, this kid's got a huge forehand and the backhand was uh, unique. And then a few years later, I was traveling with Jim one of the years, about 15 weeks. So all through Europe, when I was with him, he won the Italian Junior Championships him and Jonathan Stark won the French doubles. And we just had a lot of good results when I was over there on that trip. I was also with a young man called Malavia Washington. And if you remember, he got to five in the world. So at that time, there was a lot of great male players coming up when the USTA was really stressed about who's going to replace Connors McEnroe. And I was quietly a young coach trying to tell him, hey, you know what? I think we got some good players on the way up. They definitely did. I'm just going to cut back to Sloan Stevens quickly. What was it like seeing somebody who you worked with from an early age win a slam? What sort of feeling? How did you feel? Well, it's pretty special. And I'll be very clear. I've had a lot of input with Sloan over the years. But I have a personal philosophy that I never say I developed anyone. 
because I believe there's so many people involved in the process of the development of that, that young person, whether it be parents, physical trainers, different people that come in and out. So what I like to say is I was blessed when Courier was in the Hall of Fame. He actually was gracious enough to invite me and he mentioned me in his speech, which was an amazing, wonderful experience. But, you know, I had a very small part and I never tried to overstate that. Sloan started with me at 11, 11, 12, 13, 14, and then she went to California. But to be clear, there was only one year that from 11 to 27 that we didn't work at least part of the time or at some point during that year. So we've stayed in contact throughout. And to answer your question about someone who wins a Grand Slam, I was not working with her at that time. Kamal was, and my hat's off to her and him. And I was sitting on my couch and I got to tell you, it was an emotional experience, not just because of Sloan, but almost as much because of Sybil, her mother. We're friends. We've gone through a lot of ups and downs over the years when, you know, I was there uh, during the time when Sloan's stepfather died of cancer and, you know, a difficult times that that was involved with the natural ebb and flow and ups and downs of the tennis development. And, and then later on with meeting her natural father and him tragically dying later on in a car accident. And it's been, I guess, 16 years. And so it's really emotional when you see all of the dreams and the hopes coming to fruition in one moment. And when you know the difficult road and the commitment that it takes um, for Sybil along with Sloan. It was a very moving experience and one I'll never forget. That's what I want to find out because there was, there's history there where you work with somebody from a long age, you're around their family. It must be so emotional. So thanks for telling us. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. And also you were in the box for Bouchard's final at Wimbledon. Yes. Jeannie first came to me at 12 years, came to us at 12 years old, and I worked a great deal with her up until 14, uh, 15. And then the situation of 2008, there was the financial crisis and all of this stuff. And Tennis Canada had come and offered a great deal. And so I recommended at that time, I said, you can't pass this up. They were going to have her training on the road, 25 weeks coaching. I mean, just amazing support. And so what transpired is Jeannie and her mom, Julie, would always come back with those coaches and we wound up working together with Tennis Canada. So I was constantly in touch with Jeannie multiple times over the years, each step of the way. Then in 2014, she asked me to train her full-time, which I did. She was down at the academy, and she went from 145 to about uh, 35. And then I had never really gone on the tour with anybody um, because, you know, I'm married, three children, and I don't particularly like to travel that much. But Jeannie said, would you please go out with me on the tour? So I said, okay, and I committed to 10 tournaments, and it just turned out that she got to the semis, the Australian Open. Um, she got to the, I think it was the quarters Indian Wells. She won her first pro tournament in Germany when I was there, and then I was with her at the French where she came close to, she was in the semis, and then coming to Wimbledon, 
Uh, she got all the way to the final. So it was not an amazing surprise that she got to the finals, but it was an incredible experience. And it's something where the excitement of being there day after day, I mean, you're, you're grinding and you're, you're working, you're trying to make sure every detail goes well. But I remember something I told Jeannie, which was really important when we showed up. Because at this point, Jeannie, it was kind of the talk of the tennis world. Because she came out of nowhere. She's a fresh face, great personality, just all around, you know, an attractive talent out on the tennis courts. And so there was a lot of buzz around her. And I remember being outside of the apartment that we were going to rent. Her mom was there, our physical trainer and all that. And there was a moment where we were just the two of us there talking. And I said to her, look, the goal is that when we close the door to leave and leave this apartment behind, that we know in our minds and our heart that we did absolutely everything possible to give you the best chance to play and be as successful as you possibly can. And I said, I will do everything. We can't guarantee the result, but we can guarantee when we close this door and we're walking to the cab to go to the airport, we know that we left no stone unturned. And Jeannie was phenomenal. She would listen and she was just turned 20 years old. And you know what? She had a brutal draw and one match after another. Uh, and she got through that field with really difficult tendonitis in both knees. And uh, she worked through it. She was such a trooper. And she wound up having a phenomenal tournament and getting all the way to the finals. Wimbledon is uh, the premier tournament in the world. And it was an exciting run. Uh, she beat Halep in the semis. And it was a memory of a lifetime for me. And I always will feel a closeness with uh, Jeannie, with the evolution from 12 years old all the way up and being there with her during some of those times was really a wonderful memory and experience for me personally, professionally. And as I said, I look at working with all of these young people as a blessing and a sacred trust. And it's a sacred trust to that young person and it's a sacred trust to their parents. And for me, it's a real blessing. So I feel blessed to have worked with so many wonderful young people and so many wonderful, talented individuals. And I feel passionate about my responsibility is to simply try to help them achieve their full potential and have and understand what it means to be successful. That's really my goal. And you cannot teach tennis at the highest level unless you are incorporating in positive life skills. Because in order to compete at that high level, in order to rise above frustration, in order to persevere in the practice and out there on the tennis court in order to be independent, to think, to problem solve, to, you know, deal with adversities and all of this different. These are life skills and you must be helping that person to learn this in order for them to perform at the highest levels. So that's why there's a deep sense of satisfaction when you see them performing and going out on a stage in front of millions of people and performing and walking around with confidence, if I feel that in a small way, in a small way, I help contribute to that, that's what fires me up every morning with every nine-year-old or 10-year-old or whomever that I work with or every child that's a good tennis player 
that goes on to become a doctor or a lawyer or that you see 10 years later that's successful in their life, I say, yep, I'm blessed. Yes, I'm passionate. And I ask for to be able to be healthy to do this for another 15 years. Hopefully, yes. I wish you the health as well to keep doing that, Nick. But just, I want to ask you, a lot of your players you've worked with have done really well are females. And I want to ask you, what is the secret? What's advice for other coaches to work with females? Before we get onto that, can I just ask you, what happened to Jeannie after that from your side? Did she just lose interest in tennis? Other interests? Is that what's happened to her career? No, I don't think that's it. After Wimbledon, she had some significant injuries that she was trying to fight through, but she also was dealing with a lot of pressure to be out on the courts, you know, because she was in such demand. And I think for a while there, she wasn't fully healthy and really 100% prepared to play. But from my perspective, towards the end of the year, U.S. Open, she got to the round of 16s. I felt that the time had run its course. And, you know, we met and I remember the date we met on November 20th, 2014. And at that point, you know, I knew a month, a month and a half in advance that I wasn't going to go forward with it. And I think the split was mutual. It was very positive all around, but I did not think it was going to work well to go forward. And it worked out, you know, she pretty much felt the same thing. And and then we, we left, but we parted in a very positive way. And, you know, I always wished her well, and I always appreciate my time with Jeannie. And I, in fact, started work with her a little bit about a year and a half uh, later, tried to help her out. And we had a really good time. But, you know, I, I felt I didn't want to continue forward. And Jeannie and I, we both got together. She felt the same thing that it was best to uh, move in a different direction. So what transpired after that is um, I can't really say. I can only say that my relationship and my time with Jeannie was incredibly positive, remains positive, and I will always be appreciative of my time spent with Jeannie Bouchard. Great. So back on to what I was saying before, for other coaches who are listening here, what's some tips you can give them that can help them get the best out of females? Because I know coaching a female and a male, it's two completely different things. A couple things. First of all, as I said, I played on the tour, uh, you know, and I was the director of coaching for men's tennis in the United States. I worked first with and had a lot of success with men. And throughout these 18 years, we've had multiple people come out that have uh, that I've worked with that were playing and had success on the men's tour. We've had multiple national champions in the United States, male players and so on. So it's not like just the females. The point is with the females, I happen to be a father of three daughters and I'm actually a grandfather of three with two more on the way. And raising three daughters with my wife, they're like 35, 32, and 30. And I come from a really large family. Of I have four sisters and four brothers, and I have 80 plus nieces and great nieces and nephews and so on. So when you combine that with a lot of coaching over the years, you realize that you have to treat each player as an individual without violating your, your principles. Specifically with the females, it's really, I don't see too much difference from the guys as much as I see individually, you have to be aware that you must be very relationship oriented. In other words, as with any young person, they there's a saying that goes, I don't care what you say until I know you care. You have to earn trust and you have to build confidence in themselves and show that you are there for their best interest. The gals at a young age are different, at least that's been my experience. I can't say unequivocally, but I have found that some of the gals at a young age are far more mature than the guys. 
and therefore they will listen more closely to what you have to say. But in doing that, you need to be careful not to abuse that young person's willingness to follow instructions really closely. The guys are a little immature at, say, 10, 11, 12. They're kind of all over the place. You can get some young gals that will just zero in and listen to every word you say. And given that, you've got to make sure that you're building your relationship on a real solid foundation of quality values and ethics where you are not only having them listen to what you're saying, but you also make sure that you are building their abilities to problem solve, to grow, to be strong and independent. Over a period of time, and as these young people mature, they begin to recognize that they can trust you and that your hopefully your information is really good, but even more importantly, your intent is to help them achieve their goal. So I'm very big on teaching and coaching with your core value system and that the person you're working with is the one that you focus on, not um, on yourself and say, getting the acknowledgement for them winning some tournament or something along those lines. Yeah, you got to really have their interests at heart and let them know that. Excuse me, I will mention something specific that's practical. They will learn fundamentals earlier than the men as a general rule. And they mature generally a little bit earlier. And so given that, you want to really emphasize and be meticulous about the fundamentals of the game and instilling them at a young age. So really good quality technique, eliminating anything that will limit them later on is very, very important. And that needs to be done early, 10, 11, 12. Uh, you got to be working really hard on that. And by creating solid fundamentals at the young age, particularly with these females, it gives them an opportunity to become the best they can be later on. Great. Thanks for that. And speaking of juniors, we actually have a question here from one of our Instagram followers, Christian Gallen, who is at Love Tennis UK. And he wanted to ask you, uh, here's his question. Realistically, to be a top level performer, how many hours should an eight-year-old 10-year-old and 12-year-old put in a week on court and off court to realistically have any chance of making it to the top? Number one is they need to cultivate a love for the game. And so there needs to be a kind of a joy and fun that they're having even within the context of hard work. So you've got to make sure that this is a, a really positive, upbeat experience for these young people. And within that context, they need to have quality during that time frame. Not necessarily at eight years old, you don't need a lot of hours. Um, it's very debatable how many hours, but I would say certainly not more than an hour and a half to two hours in a day, you know, four or five days a week, that would be on the high end. But the point is that between eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12 is arguably the biggest window in their life for athletic development. So it's really critical that if you want that player to have a long-term game or potential to achieve something long-term, you want to maximize their athletic development. So during that time frame, it's important that you make athletic development, coordination, rhythm, timing, you know, uh, kicking different balls, throwing, juggling, jump roping, skipping, all kinds of things to cultivate their natural athleticism and make the most out of that huge window 
between, say, roughly eight and 12 years old. That's huge. The other thing is making sure they have, as I said, that joy and passion for the game. So when they transition into the next phase of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, they have this powerful engine of passion and motivation, which pushes them through the hard work that's required. So, you know, I don't know exactly with each player how many hours, but as somebody starts, if they're 12 and they're female, they should be cranking in certainly multiple hours a day, but of real high quality. And more important than the number of hours is the quality of the practice, the quality of the coaching, and the foundation that's being laid. So once they say a female's 12, 13, 14 years old, it's not unusual for them to be going three hours a day to four, occasionally pushing to four, backing away, and so on. But that's very debatable. A lot of people argue in terms of exactly how many hours. So you have to do it individually, but most importantly, joy and passion for the game, athletic development, and fundamentals at that young age. And that fundamental includes a great mindset for competing and for understanding that success is really going to come from them pushing to be the best they can be. It's not specifically about beating another person. Great. Thank you very much for that. He'll be delighted with that answer. Appreciate that. I just have a couple more questions for you. And before we call the day, but one is something we ask either players, coaches, whoever we have on every week, but it's what advice do you give 15, 16 year old boys and girls who want to be pros and they're training? For you, what's the biggest advice you can offer them? The biggest advice is to speak with their parents and make sure they have a really good developmental team leader, somebody who is looking out for them, someone who understands the game developmentally and can advise them or work with them so that their time on the court is well spent. And someone who has vested an emotional vested interest in them. And this is going to be kind of their guiding light. This individual will be the one who can oversee and make sure that that young person is getting the opportunities necessary. Having said that, the players at that age, 15 years old, 16 years old, it's got to come from the inside out. In other words, it comes from hard work from within and a passion to be as good as you can be and a belief that you can accomplish these things. So I really like the kids to dream big, to have visions and try to visualize themselves accomplishing what they want. But approaching this game and appreciating this game in a way that they love going out on the court. And that is incredibly important because if I just say fundamentals, it's, it almost becomes, the word is nebulous, it's unclear, it's vague because there's so many different interpretations of fundamentals, although you want them to learn that. Um, finally, uh, if they're getting good competition to compete with other kids, all of these are important ingredients, physical development, um, technical development, understanding the game from a strategic uh, standpoint, and also having competitive opportunities. This is all orchestrated by that one key person, or it might be two developmental team leaders that help guide the ship and make sure that young person is getting the right kind of opportunities. Who is that key person most cases? Is it a parent or is it a coach or is it a friend who was a pro player before? Very often, almost always, that key person at the earlier stages is one of the parents. And contrary to a lot of people saying, oh, parents should stay out of it, in today's world, that's not realistic. Uh, so parents are going to be involved. And in most cases, 
And that's a positive most of the time. So then as time goes by, a parent may hand the, the baton, so to speak, to a coach in which the parent becomes more of like a CEO overseeing the whole thing. But the coach has more of a personal vested interest and they, they start managing a lot of the coaching and, and various things like that. And the parent being a CEO of it, they're the ones who makes the ultimate decisions in terms of finances, you know, how much can be invested and so on. But you'll find that there's a developmental team leader behind almost every great player at multiple stages of their career. You know, if we come to the last question and something a bit different to what we've been talking about, I heard that you are working on an online course you're going to release soon. Yes. What we're we're actually working on with my partner is a, a streaming online academy, so to speak, but it's going to have a lot of videos, instructional videos. It will have various things to help people at all stages of development, whether adults or juniors. And it's also going to have elements for coaches as as well as parents. So we're trying to touch the bases of all those people that are passionate um, about the game. And the site is one, there's not a lot of flash. It's not, it's not a lot of hype or, you know, rah-rah publicity. It's just going to be high quality information presented in a way that we feel is almost like a service to people where they know they can come to our site and really get the opportunity to get quality information that's clearly presented in an organized, structured way so that it kind of cuts through a lot of going on the internet where when you punch in forehand, you get a thousand different videos and people saying a thousand different things. So we're really zeroed in on fundamental principles of the game, fundamental principles in development, and all of these good things. And we're really, really excited about it. We suspect we'll be releasing this within the next uh, three to four weeks. Great. I did see one of your videos early once. It was about the ball depth over the net and it was really informed. It was great and it was produced really well. So I look forward to seeing more of that. Thank you. And then one last thing is that it's going to be called Maximum Tennis. And so it'll be Maximum Tennis by Nick Saviano. And so we're excited about it. Great. Well, we'll be sharing that when it comes out. And yeah, thanks very much for jumping on board and sharing your wealth of knowledge and experience, Nick. Well, it's really been a pleasure. I look forward to meeting you in person soon. Yeah, hopefully you might get me at a over 35 training camp. Go on. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Nick. It was a pleasure having such a world-renowned coach on the show. As I said earlier, we have a new Instagram account, Functional Tennis Podcast. Hop into your Instagram app and give us a follow. Also, remember, we'll be asking for questions with future guests. So it's a great chance for you to get on the show and ask our guests a question. So really excited with that. Other than that, hope you're healthy and you're getting through this COVID situation as best as possible. And until next week, goodbye.